as ever, when you talk about regions, it's dangerous to generalize too much. Um, across Asia, we have a, a number of different uh, jurisdictions, different legal cultures, uh, different legal frameworks, and the same is true within Southeast Asia. Who's there? D&D, of course, with Excuria International. D&D, as in do not disturb? Oh, no, this is discourse and disclosure with ECI. Oh, you mean the one that's hosted by Ananya and Romit? Bingo! Welcome back, dear listeners. Today, we are privileged to have with us a leading arbitration lawyer, Mr. Nicholas Peacock. He's currently partner and head of the international arbitration team at Bird & Bird London. Previously, Mr. Peacock was a partner at HSF London, also having set up the international arbitration practice in Singapore earlier. A highly regarded disputes lawyer, Mr. Peacock has extensive experience in arbitration and complex commercial matters. He also sits as an arbitrator in both ad hoc and other institutional rules. He currently serves as the director of the International Disputes Resolution Centre London, user council member for SIAC, as well as the council member for the Mumbai Centre for International Arbitration, and of course, a most valued advisor to us at ECI. Welcome, Nick. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Hello. Very nice to join you. So we're going to start off right away with talking to you about cross-border commercial arbitration and investment arbitration. People are very rarely aware of the kind of sub-branches that you have within the broad umbrella of arbitration. Would you mind telling us a little more about the different areas of focus we can find within this? Within um, the areas of arbitration, yes, I think it chiefly breaks down into commercial and investment arbitration. Um, at least from the perspective of a commercial dispute resolution lawyer such as myself. So by commercial arbitration, we mean arbitrations that fall out of contracts, uh, chiefly contracts between parties who, in uh, agreeing their deal, whether that's a trading contract, whether that's investment, whether that's a loan, or any other kind of commercial interaction within that contract will be a provision, an arbitration clause that says that any disputes will go to arbitration, whether that is ad hoc arbitration under a national law or institutional arbitration, such as SEAC, ICC, MCIA, LCIA. And those disputes then, when they arise, will be referred to arbitration under that contract. And so that is what we would call commercial arbitration. The other distinction, which I'm sure students will be very interested in, is investment treaty arbitration. Those are disputes that arise under treaty provisions, as you would expect. So country A and country B enter into a treaty, which says that certain protections will be made. Promises of protections are granted to investors from party A, uh, or country A rather, investing in country B. And if country B breaches those protections, then the investors from country A are entitled to bring proceedings directly against country B. Um, depending on what the treaty says, and very often that treaty will say those disputes may be raised in arbitration by the investor from country A directly against country B. And that is the situation where you then end up with investment treaty arbitration between the investor and the host state. 
Well, Nick, you've been a part of the Southeast Asia Circle, um, and especially the arbitration practice for quite a while now, having also set, helped set up the HSF International Arbitration Practice in Southeast Asia. Culturally, what makes the Southeast Asian legal sphere distinct from, say, the West? Sure. Well, I think, as ever, when you talk about regions, it's dangerous to generalize too much. Um, across Asia, we have a, a number of different uh, jurisdictions, different legal cultures, uh, different legal frameworks, and the same is true within Southeast Asia. So I sat uh, for a number of years in Singapore, which of course is a common law jurisdiction with a great heritage um, from English law, um, amongst others. Uh, likewise, to the north, you would have Malaysian. Um, down to the south and the east, uh, you would have Indonesia which of course is a civil law jurisdiction uh, with its own development, a lot of Dutch and German law that went into Indonesian law. So different jurisdictions um, will have different approaches, and different cultures. So I think the point is, whether you're in Southeast Asia, in Africa, or anywhere else in Europe, to know the local uh, framework, what the local tradition is, uh, where it comes from. So you will have an international perspective on what as an international investor and council that jurisdiction looks like from the outside, but you also test that with the insights of people on the ground um, with some local expertise. And you need to combine both of those when you're obviously advising your clients on doing business in that jurisdiction and in resolving disputes within that jurisdiction. Of course, should you find yourself in active dispute resolution, whether that's arbitration or court litigation, it's very important that you have people who can tell you what the reality is on the ground, combined with your experience of what uh, the interaction between that jurisdiction and the wider international practice is. I can see that there is tremendous diversity within the Asian sphere itself. So I'm going to narrow down my question here. The 2021 Queen Mary International Arbitration Survey puts Singapore near the top globally as a preferred seat of arbitration. What is the secret sauce that Singapore has? Can you help us try and trace the growth that Singapore has had as a hub for international dispute resolution? Sure, absolutely. I remember Michael Huang, um, the esteemed uh, Singaporean arbitration practitioner, being asked that question at a conference uh, many years ago, and his uh, delightful comment was that Singapore just tries very hard, um, which is not quite uh, you know, the full answer. But it is part of it, which is that Singapore has for a number of years really asked itself the question, asked other people the question, what can we do to make ourselves more attractive, more efficient um, and a better hub, a better host for international dispute resolution? Um, fundamentally, Singapore has got the infrastructure right. So from an arbitration perspective, it has a good arbitration act. It has supportive courts, recognize and respect international arbitration and who try whenever possible to have their hands off it to support the process but not interfere um, whatever invitations may be made by unhappy parties for them to do so um, you then think about do you have the arbitration centers set up the institution uh, set up and the other framework around it the, uh, the the court the commercial courts to decide challenges and and uh, and and challenges to arbitrators and challenges to awards. I mean, SEAC, don't forget, is not a new institution. It's been around since 1991, and it's gone through a number of phases where it established itself as a local and regional um, institution. 
and then took a step to becoming more and more international, uh, bringing international um, people to, uh, to take offices there, setting up the court of arbitration and really taking a much broader approach so that it's become not only a regional centre, but also genuinely a global centre. But it hasn't happened overnight. And it's always um, interesting and insightful if you meet with people from the Singapore Ministry of Law, MinLaw, um, they will invariably ask, what's your view of Singapore arbitration? What do you think we could be doing different or better? And uh, that sort of questioning um, is obviously very uh, um, refreshing from a government. Don't forget, of course, that Singapore is a small and very agile jurisdiction. And I think it's always important to bear that in mind. The population of Singapore is some 6 million. Um, the population of Delhi is some 31 million. So you can't really compare the two. And you know the ability of the Singaporean government to do things based upon its own uh, governmental structures and frankly just the size of its jurisdiction um, does make it a different proposition. So it's always dangerous to compare, but what has Singapore done well? Well, it's, it's, it's learned lessons from others and it's taken best practice from others and it's been very agile and energetic in putting those reforms in place. Well, there's clearly so much to learn from Singapore, but I'm gonna play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Um, we see in the midst of the pandemic that SIAC opened North American offices. What does this mean for South Asia as a dispute resolution hub? Why is it that SIAC is now moving away from Singapore? Sure, well, I think it tells you a little bit about the ambitions of SIAC and also the current um, clients of SIAC in terms of where it's getting its cases from. And the 2020 case report from SIAC showed, as ever, Indian parties being very heavily involved and driving a lot of the numbers of cases at SIAC, but also US parties being the second largest constituent of non-Singaporean parties uh, having cases at SIAC. So it's no great surprise um, that SIAC felt the need to reach out to that market, put a representative office in New York. Needless to say, the time zones between much of North America and SIAC are not very helpful. So if you only have your staff working Singapore hours, um, then folks across the US will find it a lot harder to interact with somebody um, during their working day. So I think the SEAC office is reflective of the existing caseload the SEAC is already seeing and also where it sees growth and its ambition to be an international centre and not just a regional player. And if you want to be an international player, then obviously you need to be available to people uh, on a time zone when they will be awake and you will be awake. I think that's, that's I mean, it, it's really a simple answer, therefore, which is just how big comes down to simple decisions like we need to have time zones and sleep cycles that match. So talking of that, uh, arbitration as a process has lent itself particularly well to an international internationalizing business environment. Now, how do global law firms work in this area? considering, say, different qualification requirements. Like you mentioned, it's important to have someone with boots on the ground. How does that work? And are some practice areas simply more portable than others when it comes to this? Yes, I think they are. Um, international arbitration is, is a lucky area in that it tends to not be anchored so firmly in any particular jurisdiction. 
So as an international arbitration practitioner myself, I've been fortunate to be able to work both in my home jurisdiction, I'm an uh, English qualified solicitor advocate here in London, but also to go and work in Singapore. And I could work in very happily in any of a dozen cities around the world, which would support an international arbitration practice. Now, in some of those cases that I would run, I would then be running cases under English law. I might be running cases under international law. I've mentioned treaty practice already. Um, I have also run cases under different laws, Singapore, New York, Indonesian, Indian, various different laws. And you, the joy of international arbitration is you bring together the skill set that you need to argue the case on the facts and to apply the law. And so if I'm doing a case, as I have done in the past in Indonesia, I will co-counsel with an Indonesian arbitrator um, who is able to give me the inputs on substantive Indonesian law and, of course, local practice. And then, as we discussed earlier, an arbitration will require a certain amount of local knowledge because an arbitration has a seat, and that seat will have national laws governing the arbitration. And you need to be aware of those laws and of any uh, traps uh, for the unwary in terms of running that arbitration. And, of course, the possibility of court interactions, challenges to arbitrators, challenges to awards. But it's a mix of those things. And so I think arbitration does lend itself as a subject matter, as a practice area uh, for more international work. Um, and that, of course, makes it great for international firms such as Bird and Bird. Um, we have a great big arbitration practice across our 29 offices and uh, the pleasure of working across those offices when we have cases. So if we have a case with a Polish element, and an English element, uh, then that works nicely in terms of London and Warsaw teaming up on that case. Likewise, London, Singapore, there's a great nexus there. London, Singapore with India, of course, uh, there's a great nexus. Um, so I think international arbitration is one of those happy practice areas where it's easier uh, to work across offices. And indeed, there are great benefits and necessities from time to time in doing so. Nick, it'd be interesting to get your opinion on what you think other growing economies can uh, do or um, have potential to do to bring international arbitration practice as, as their hub. So say, for instance, we see you as a council member at NCIA. Can India ever become a global hub for international arbitration? Well, I think it's possible, isn't it? But I think the first step for a jurisdiction like India, recognizing, of course, that there is a very uh, large and vibrant arbitration uh, economy within India already. And of course, arbitration is greatly used for commercial dispute resolution. Um, I think the first task for India is to make sure that the domestic market is fully served. So arbitrations between Indian parties, arbitrations involving investments in India um, and involving Indian parties, that there is an efficient uh, market to service those disputes that Participants have a choice. They can choose ad hoc arbitration, of course. They can go to reliable, efficient domestic institutions. Um, and the MCI is set up to be precisely that. Um, and of course, they can use other institutional arbitration like ICC, like SEAC, like LCIA, um, and have those seats in India. And that should work as well. Um, so I think the first step is to make sure that you're servicing your domestic market. And in doing so, you have both those institutions and the law in place, but as we said earlier, the infrastructure around it. So supportive courts, good decisions, neutral decision-making in the courts, and hands-off wherever possible. 
Now, if you do that, um, then you will create a happy environment where domestic parties will keep their disputes um, in arbitration, um, recognising they always have a choice, court, arbitration, domestic, international. And then, of course, you will attract disputes from outside. Um, so I think, can it do it? Yes, absolutely. But I think it's to be done in stages. So firstly, uh, make sure that parties are happy to arbitrate within India. And then once you get that environment right, international parties too will be happy to arbitrate in India. Nick, you mentioned an, an important factor for making any place an international hub is, of course, the local laws. With respect to the recent Amazon Reliance arbitration and the ongoing case um, in Indian courts, do you have an opinion on how that could influence the arbitration sphere in India? Um, not really. I think it's a little bit dangerous to, to comment on individual cases and how they influence the wider development of the law. I think what is important there is that the courts and arbitration has been able to react to a situation, clearly a contentious situation, um, and uh, deal with it through a number of different interacting, interacting fora. Um, you know, the actual dispute itself, well, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. I think that's a very grounded answer. And in fact, I think a lot of the charisma around arbitration is, is the possibility of travel and working with different teams across jurisdictions. And therefore, the focus on having domestic arbitration and making sure that gets on its feet is something that, that I think is really important. So talking about the lack of travel when it comes to working domestically in arbitration, the pandemic has certainly brought an end to all travel across the world. So I'd like to ask you, how do you think the pandemic has affected global dispute resolution in general? Various courts have, of course, responded differently. But are there any best practices that you've seen develop that we should carry forward, even in the post-pandemic world? Sure. Well, of course, it has affected us all, hasn't it? All our carbon footprints have been happily cut um, over the last uh, 14 months or so. Um, that's one of the upsides, if there is an upside to this, uh, this ongoing uh, rather unpleasant situation. So look, I think that's taught us a lesson, that a lot of what we previously did by travel can be done without travel. Um, it can all be done without travel if we absolutely have to. And I think the lesson for us going forwards will be, what is worth the trade-off in terms of carbon, in terms of time, in terms of cost, in terms of disruption, of getting everybody in the same place for meetings, for negotiations, for hearings. Um, and I'm quite sure uh, that the future will not be the same as the past in that we won't travel quite as freely as we used to. But I think we will also have all been taught a lesson by this pandemic and being forced to do everything online that some things are worth traveling for and are much better in person. And I think for myself that final hearings will always be one of those occasions where it'd be far better to be in the room with the tribunal and with one's opposing counsel and arguing things out. And if you have witnesses in particular tricky areas uh, that you try to examine and cross-examine, then I think most times that would be better done in person. We've shown that we don't have to have it in person all the time. And certainly where there is a more marginal benefit in having, say, a particular witness or a particular expert in the room, then I think we will all be far 
more willing in future to accept that that can be done by video conference um, online by whatever platform and that, that is a good trade-off and uh, and worth having as an alternative i see uh, thank you nicholas uh with that, we've come to the end of our short but sweet session, and I'm going to quickly do a wrap-up in reverse order for any of our listeners who might not have caught up fully. So we're going to start with, of course, the shifts that the pandemic has brought to the global dispute resolution sphere, and it's taught us that there are some things you can do online, and these happen to be most things, of course, now, but there are some things that are better that happen in person. For example, final hearings, uh, tricky cross-examinations for witnesses, and that there is a cost-benefit analysis that has to be made. Something that stood out to me in particular is, of course, we're also talking about the kind of impact that we have on the environment here and talking about carbon footprints that we might generate in this process. From that, we also went ahead and took a look at the possibilities other emerging economies, India, for example, might have in marketing themselves as global dispute resolution hubs. We have a very down-to-earth response here wherein it's important to make sure that the domestic framework for arbitration is strong and that we are adequately serving our domestic market first. This perhaps acts as a proof of concept which then invites more confidence in turning an area into an international hub. Beyond that, of course, we recognize that the arbitration process itself is well suited to working across areas and jurisdictions and that the practice area itself is simply more portable which allows for global firms to work across offices and, of course, coordinate with specific experts, national, nationals on, the, on hand, talking about the law, being aware of particular loopholes that might pop up, and make sure that we steer clear of that. Beyond that, we perhaps look at our miracle child in East Asia. A lot of discussion about Singapore, starting with looking at the origins of arbitration in Singapore and the fact that it's been a really long journey. SEAC started up in 1991, and it's only now, in 2020, that it's expanding beyond to markets in North America. And we can see that, of course, beyond the efforts that Singapore makes as a small, agile state, a very active government, which continuously asks you, what can we do to make arbitration better? We also, of course, are catering to market demand, such as the fact that you now have your second largest base of clients in North America and simple business decisions like making sure the time zones match also play a role in making sure that you remain an arbitration friendly jurisdiction. Of course, we recognize that it's important to have local talent and be aware of diversities within Asia as well. Indonesia, for example, is a civil law nation and it draws from Dutch and German principles of law. Singapore is common law, Malaysia will have Islamic law influences and it's important to be in the know of all of these while trying to work within the Southeast Asian sphere. With all of that, we really thank you, Nick, for joining us today and giving us such insights into the process of dispute resolution in Southeast Asia. And also in particular, of course, what you began with, which is what are the different kinds of arbitration processes that we have? We got a quick walkthrough in terms of what falls under the umbrella of international commercial arbitration and what would be considered international investment arbitration dealing with state parties and treaties at that. With that, we thank you very much for joining us today and being such a wonderful guest. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nick. <laughs>